The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Kids, put down your Zoom, pick up your Zine, and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 257 with guest Marcus Egger, recorded live Thursday, July 19th, 2007. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net. Training developers to work smarter by bringing world-class .NET and SharePoint training on-site for your development team. Online at www.franklins.net. And by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. Support is also provided by Developer Express, crafting first-class tools, frameworks, and controls for the .NET developer. Improve your experience online at www.devexpress.com. And by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who Harry Potter will look like in 20 years, Carl Franklin. Thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin, your host of the most on the West Coast with Richard Campbell in his happy place. Here we are in my office. You enjoying it? It's pretty cool. We just, um, I, I especially like that you can just walk to Starbucks, which is nice. Yes, and, and feel good about it because we take the dog with us, so yeah. he gets a little exercise. Yep. My wife and I came up here uh, with our kids for Richard's 40th birthday party. And uh, it was quite the bash. It was over 100 people there, including a bunch of folks that the listeners would probably know. Yeah, absolutely. Stephen Forte was here. Mark Miller was here. Eileen Rumwell. Yes. Uh, Kent Alstad. Kent was here. And, and a whole host of my friends. Of course, it was an interesting sort of George Costanza Worlds Collide event for me. I had my neighbors, my friends from high school. My I, You met my parents. Yeah, your mom was a trip. We got to get her on Mondays to tell some of those stories about your early childhood in New Zealand. Boy, she had us rolling. He's starting to believe that I'm not an anomaly in my family. <laughs> no, you're not. <laughs> One thing that was anomalous, however, about the last .NET Rock show is that Richard, uh, in Better Know Framework, I mentioned system.web.mail. We got a little bit of email about that. Yeah, we got some email about it because apparently uh, either I didn't know or I had forgotten because I seem to remember hearing about this, but I just had forgotten about it, that uh, system.web.mail is deprecated and it's really only for .NET 1.1. And uh, the reason that it was deprecated is because it uses interop. It uses the old CDO and CDO sys libraries uh, and the new system.net dot mail namespace which by the way this is better no framework music all right enough of that i just had to sit <laughs> we, i would also point out we have a bunch of email of folks saying hey don't change the music i love don't it. change the music right so uh apparently uh system.net.mail was written from the ground up in managed code and it does not have any of those old interop issues right so so if you're going to use email from .NET, use system.net.mail, which is available in .NET 2.0 and forward. Are they any different method-wise? Uh, that's a good question. I didn't get a chance because I haven't used system.net.mail to, to look at it. But, I mean, from the outside, the classes look the same. Um, I haven't dug into the implementation, so I don't know. But we can probably answer that question next week. I'm sure it's not magic. You, yeah. you attach a mail, you... 
assign some recipients, and actually, you send it. It actually looks like there's more more there on the on the top level classes. It looks like there's more stuff with attachments and in uh, authentication and things like that. Oh, cool. And that's probably just a sign of the times too, as well, because mail mail changes so fast. You know, requirements and things, security, etc. All right, so Richie, you got an email? I do indeed have an email, and I'm not going to read any of the emails about the uh, Better Know Framework. We got well, a bunch. Well, they were pretty much all the same. And thank you, by the way, for those who sent in those emails, and uh, and thanks for pointing that out. They were great messages, really well thought out. And you know what I really appreciated? I, I know you saw this a bunch of time in the emails as well, is people saying, hey, I'm not sure I'm right. Right. You know, that sort of maturity to say, not just boldly go off and say, you guys are wrong, but it's just... You might want to check this because like, I, I always yep. recognize guys who've had a lot of experience with being wrong, which is what being a software developer is all about. Bottom line, we have a great relationship with our listeners. <laughs> we really appreciate it. It's all a right. two-way street. Let me jump to an email for you. This is sort of a flashback email, okay. too. Uh, Dear R- Carl and Richard and Lawrence, I was fortunate enough to discover .NET Rocks and DNR TV to help fill the void suffered from an otherwise content developer working from home. Ah. If there is anything I miss about the corporate life, it's an opportunity to talk shop with other developers. But I sure don't miss the politics. The stab wounds in my back are still healing. Ah, yes. I I have a few of those myself. Indeed. (laughs) I love hearing your guests discuss the old days with you, particularly the Commodore years. Oh, boy. I'm proud to say that I got my start on the Commodore Pet with the Chiclet Keyboard. Man, talk about a fast boot time. The OS was ready before the monitor had warmed up. You know, I sometimes when you have conversations, I can barely hold on because I have a context. But in this case, I, you are on your own, pal. <laughs> I know nothing about Commodore. This is all you, man. Oh, it's such an adventure. Of course, I went through puberty while waiting for my cursor magazines to load from cassette tape. I, I, love, I still have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> Well, I shouldn't try to play the one-up game with old technology. There's always someone who had it worse, although you haven't lived until you've typed Wumpus for an entire weekend. Because back then we used to actually type in our programs, right? That's What's what it, Wumpus? Please educate find me. Find the Wumpus? Now, I've heard Find the Wumpus, but I don't know what it is. Is it a game? It was a game, yeah. Very ancient text-based game for, okay. you know, exploring a maze trying to find a Wumpus. So like a Infocom style? Earlier than that. But that's the same style, right? Uh, Text adventure. Far more primitive than that. Okay. It was not really an adventure. It was an exercise in futility. (laughs) This all comes to mind when I listen to the show 230, Catching Up with Rob Howard, wherein Richard is discussing the Commodore 1541 floppy disk drive, and it prompts me to ask two questions. One, did you ever use a nibbling tool to chop out a notch on the disk sleeve so you could turn over a single-sided disk and use the other side? Oh, I know people who did that with five and a quarters. Well, yeah, that was on the, the TRS-80. Yeah, I did that. But it was before double-sided, because the discs were around before double-sided, double-density discs came out. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, single-sided, single-density, you know, you flip the disc you over. flip the disc over. You take your chances with the, with the reliability. Well, they never tested the other side. Listen to me, like, like I'm giving tips here for yeah. people who are going to go home and try it. Yeah, don't, right? don't be doing that. But, yep, I did it. <laughs> Good fun. And the other, number, the other question was, if you were repairing drives, then surely you went so far to install a switch to convert the drive to be a secondary drive. And yes, certainly I did. I, I spent a long time repairing hardware, uh, both for TRS-80 stuff and Commodore-related stuff. So we did a lot of custom modifications, adding lowercase kits and all those good things. And finally, here is some trivia. Do you remember what POKE 59468,14 did? No Googling. Now, you absolutely know the answer to this, because you told me you knew it. Well, I, I knew it's not absolute. I am pretty sure. The problem is that there was actually two different pokes. One set the keyboard on the chiclet keyboard for the pet to lowercase mode, and the other one set it to uppercase mode. Now, is that the only way you could do it, was yes. by writing a basic program to poke? Well, yeah, you we just ran this command. That was how you did it. With. Oh, actually, you're right. I remember the Commodore was all basic. That, That's right. That was the OS. So you just typed it straight in. There was just none of this compiling or anything. Right. It was a inter- completely interpretive machine. So it's one of those two. It switches it to, I think it probably switches it to lowercase. But hmm. that's... that's what that poke was. Wow. So and it's just so it's literally setting a bit in memory. Wow. Because there was no caps lock on the keyboard. Yeah, that was too complicated. <laughs> 
If you get it right, swag might be in order. Of course, I don't have a Doug Lansdowne mug to send you, so maybe you could send me some instead. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And that's Doug Lansdowne from Kansas or Texas, USA. I guess he's not sure which. So we're sh- we don't know if you're right though. So we're gonna have to Google it to find out if you're absolutely right. All right. Sh- shall we Google now? Shall- let's Google it now. Okay. And we'll edit out us Googling, and we'll be right back after a brief Google. And we're back through the magic of audio editing. And here I am after my brief Google at the portcommodore.com website. Oh with- my god! With the basic commands for my pet, and I would point out this page made long after there were any work. There were no working pets left anywhere and the question was uh how do i access the upper lowercase or graphics character sets and to direct the computer to the lowercase uppercase mode it is poke four nine four six eight comma 14 so is that the the same one yes okay so i'm right there you go doug lansdowne gets swag (laughs) (laughs) of course you're right and we'd also just like to mention that uh, Greg Brill is now not only hiring people in New York, but also in the Boston office. They're looking for people in the Boston office. So if you're interested in Boston, why don't you send me an email, carl at franklins.net. And if you're interested in spending a year in New York living in an apartment rent-free for a year and working with some really smart people, go to shrinkster.com slash kh6. All right, Richard, it's time to bring on Marcus Egger. Marcus is no stranger to .NET Rocks. He's no stranger to .NET. In fact, uh, he was on a very early show uh, about uh, tablet PCs and uh, has been back since to talk about various things. But he's an MVP. He's the president of EPS Software and the publisher of Code Magazine, one of our very beloved sponsors, and an all-around good guy. Hi, Marcus. Hey, guys. Good to be back. It's great to have you back. How's Code Magazine going, Guy? Well, it's going pretty well, actually. Thanks for asking. Um, you know, it's always a lot of fun to do a magazine and, you know, with digital and print and all those types of things. And people are pretty excited around it and certainly a nice second thing to do in addition to the development stuff we do and kind of a good balance. So having a lot of fun with it. And, you know, we've had, we did a show just a little while ago. We were talking about is print dead was kind of the mentality. But Code Magazine just seems to be thriving. And I'm I'm not entirely sure what it is about your mag that works so well. Oh, I think I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think it's, it's a good balance that we have found there. You know, being a software house as well as a publisher, it's it's kind of nice and, and easy for us to produce content that other publishers typically wouldn't churn out because, you know, we're not a publisher trying to figure out software development, but we are a software house trying to figure out publishing, which may make the business a little harder on occasion, but I think it works really well for the reader because we're not just making up some content that, you know, we think should be interesting but we know what kind of content interests us as developers. And, and that just seems to work out very well for everyone. And, and people seem to like that. And, you know, at the end of the day, you produce content and you deliver it digitally, you deliver it in print. And I, I think both both sides have valid points, right? So I don't think print is dead, but I certainly do think that the digital component in addition to print is very important. Well, I also know, Marcus, that um, that you have a little bit less of a pressure to turn a profit on Code Magazine because I guess there's some infrastructure in the family and you have somewhat an easy time publishing or, or um, something. I can't remember what we what we had talked about before. but Yeah, it's true to a certain extent. I mean, I'm originally from Europe and uh, as, as listeners probably figured out by now. <laughs> um, right. And that's where the magazine actually started out. And I actually own part of a business in Europe that does just media production. And when we started Code Magazine, that's really how we produced it, right? We we did all the layouts, uh, all the design, all the printing, all that in Europe. And we could do so relatively inexpensive because we did it together with a number of other magazines that we produced there. Now, since then, things Uh. have changed a little bit and we moved a lot to the U.S., because, well, quite frankly, the U.S. dollar doesn't buy us very much in Europe anymore. So really the right. 
uh, economy behind that idea at the time broke down. So now we're doing a lot here. I mean, we're still doing design and layout in Europe, but everything else, production, shipping, you know, all the content we've always produced here anyway. So that's changed a little bit, but it certainly allowed us to get an easier start. The blessing of the strong euro. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what's really cool about code is that it, it, I don't know, it just seems to be less uptight or something. Well, thank you. I, I'm I'm not sure what it is. Maybe it's the maybe it's the lack of hardcore C plus plus driver articles or something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, and you know, we try to have a lot of community involvement. I think there's more MVPs reading this magazine and writing for the magazine than any of the others, and so it, yeah, it's been a pretty cool thing and and very well received by the community. Now, that's not to say that other magazines aren't good, right? I'm I'm kind of a magazine nut myself, and I read a lot of other magazines, too, but uh, we certainly like to think that we've struck a a good compromise there and produced something people like. Well, and I think of the number of times I've had to take a picture of a crowd of people holding up Code Magazine (laughs) over the past few years. Your little, uh, you know, public uh, distribution, your community distribution mechanism where yep. yeah, I'll I'll send you a case of magazines. All you got to do is give me some proof. Get everyone to hold it <laughs> right. up and take a picture. <laughs> well, and there's several reasons why we do this, right? For one, I mean, it's it's kind of a cool thing. We do this code on the road thing uh, where we just show all kinds of weird places that Code Magazine is read and that it's become kind of the self-running fun thing we do. Right. Uh, so if anyone's listening out there who's reading Code Magazine, I don't know, at the top of a volcano or something like that, you know, send us a picture and we'll publish it. It'll be like that dancing guy video, you know. And then there's somewhat of a of an official reason for that too, because we do give the magazine to a lot of user groups and try to support all you know all code camps and all kinds of similar efforts. Um, but there's rules around that in the publishing industry. If you do this with a printed magazine, you can't just say, "Oh, I sent off a hundred copies to this code camp," uh, because you want to be able to count that and tell uh, potential advertisers that you know so many people are reading it at a code camp. Right. And this allows us to back that up and allows us to actually count these things, too. But most of it's become a fun thing at this point. So talking about the magazine is one thing, but we're actually here to talk about a technology that grew around the magazine that, um, well, you, you know, you've always been into graphics and WPF, and now you've sort of put that together with a magazine reader or something? Yep, that's, that's exactly right. We are doing a product called Scene. Uh, spelled X-I-I-N-E. And this grew out of this combination of us being a software house and a publisher. Right? And, and as you know, Carl, I've always done a lot of UI stuff. So when this WPF thing uh, first came around, right, very early first alphabets, I immediately jumped on that. And as a company, that's a very important thing for us as a software company. So we started playing with uh, WPF, and we realized that there was a huge, uh, that there was huge potential around doing better digital reading, right? True next-generation digital reading. So that's when we started playing around with some prototypes, and that's where Scene came from, ultimately. It's really a next-generation digital reading platform for anything, really. Magazines, books, white papers, you know what? Our tagline is all you can read. So whatever you can read, we figure we (laughs) can do well in a digital fashion. Now, that's not to replace print, right? It's really just in addition to print. Uh, we try to do unique things with it. But, yeah, that, that in, in a nutshell is, is the technology you, you So the mentioned. obvious question, Marcus, is why not a website? You know, why, why make a smart client at all? Mm-hmm. Well, that's a, a fair question. And the problem with websites is that they really have not been built from the ground up. The whole web technology has not been built from the ground up to provide rich layout capabilities. Now, if you take, say... I don't know, the New York Times or, or a nice magazine or a nicely formatted book and, and look at its layout capabilities. You know, anything from the way the text flows to multi-columns to the experience you have in a book in terms of flipping pages and so forth yeah. um, or the, the positioning of photos or other art in, in the flow. right? And, of course, the quality, right? the, the, just the rendering quality. Those are all real problem areas for digital content today, right? And, and that's exactly what we figure what we figure we can fix with WPF and a lot of the value adds that we place on top of it. So I'm thinking immediately of the New York Times reader, which um, 
was a great application to fool around with until they started deciding to uh, charge for it. Yes, exactly. Yeah, the, the New York Times reader really was one of the first examples for a better digital reading experience. Right now, they did a very specific thing. They built a reader for their magazine or their newspaper and their newspaper only, which to me is kind of not that cool a thing to do, right? I want things to be more open. Uh, but, you know, they are the New York Times. They they want to maintain their market. They're not looking for new eyeballs as much as they're trying to stop the bleeding. Uh, so right. they want, wanted to have this closed environment and want to charge for it. And... And also, it's in some ways a pretty simple effort in, in that it just does what WPF does out of the box for the most part. So it's not entirely true. Um, yeah. But we try to go a lot further than that with, with our effort. So is the software you know, freely downloadable? Uh, yeah, is it open source? Can I look at what you built? Um, it's freely downloadable, but it's not open source. Okay. All right. So you can go to zine.com uh, or code-magazine.com and you just click on a link and it downloads a, a rich client application at this point it's a click once deployed wpf app so you click on a link you know it has a link on the, on the code focus site for instance which is this special brand of free magazines uh that we do so you can go to the to the, to the code site click on a link and it's a click here to read magazine x and if you don't have the zine reader installed it'll install it on the fly using click once uh, it's a download that's about a meg in size, so it is actually about the size of a large photo, right, or smaller. So it installs very, very quickly, and it then immediately shows the magazine that, that you're reading, right, or that you want to read. Uh, so the install is required, but it goes very quick. It's totally free, but of course it depends a little bit on the type of content that you're reading, because we provide a, a lot of free content. But then some of the content that we have is locked away, right? So to read the actual magazine, you need a magazine subscription. But it'll know all the subscriptions you've ever had, right? So that's kind of cool. So actually, it'll only show me the magazines that I paid for, but it'll always show me those ones. Exactly. So that's a very important aspect, actually, right? If, if you look at the web, the web is just a bunch of stuff, right? And it has a lot of stuff. But you don't really have a, a good way of managing your library. So if you own books and if you own magazines and all that sort of stuff, it's very difficult to manage that well digitally. And that's also something that Scene provides is the ability to say, okay, here's my library. I want to organize it in a certain way. And no matter where I log into this thing, right, because you can have this on multiple computers, no matter where you log into this thing, you'll always see your library. So it's a way to to organize and collect digital content if you want. So where is that subscription information living? Is it actually on a central server somewhere? So that lives on our server, right? So, or it at least goes through our server, right? We've talked to some publishers, like including Microsoft, and they said, well, we already have a huge content library, right? So in that case, we just route through our servers and you know, don't actually host all the content. But there has to be one central place where all of this is maintained. The subscription information. The subscription information as well as some of the content, right? The content, so, too. Yeah, I was going to ask you, what format is the content in? If I wanted to use this myself to, you know, do some sort of document reader that isn't Code Magazine, what, uh, you know, what format would the content have to be in? Mm -hmm. Excellent question. So we base everything on WPF standards, right? So the ideal world for us will be that this is somehow defined in SAML. Right? Now, of course, not a lot of content is defined in SAML today, but a lot of content is defined in XML. So XML is a very good way for us to store it as well and then to just transform it into SAML. And publishers can totally define their layout and have total freedom there, right? So it's it can be either static SAML that somebody creates, or it can be XML with a dynamic transformation that either we provide or somebody themselves create to make it look different. Um, so now, of course, the question often becomes, well, if I don't have any of these two formats, how do I get it into that format? Yeah, what what if, for example, I had docx files and, you know, I wanted to convert those? Right. So a very good question. So if you have some standard format, like a docx file or, or an older doc file or a PDF, we actually have tools to take this stuff in and convert it into the standard format we expect, which is 
WPF SAML format, right? Awesome. Now, SAML is one thing. Of course, if you have XML as a source, which a lot of publishers have today, it is very easy to convert into SAML using style sheets and so forth. So sure. those are the kinds of things we do internally today. And the plan as we go forward is to also really open this up to the community and give the community the means to actually publish their own content into this system. Because community is a huge aspect of this whole scene thing, uh, even though the currently released version doesn't really show any of this yet. But it's probably the biggest effort that we currently have going on is to extend really new ways of, of including the community into the publishing effort. Hey, do you find that the horizontal scroll bar is the most annoying thing when you're trying to read that impossibly long line of code? Well, maybe a 19-inch LCD monitor would help. Telerik challenges you to explore their new reporting product and have a chance to give your workstation a facelift. A 19-inch NEC monitor could be yours if you answer a few easy multiple-choice questions about Telerik reporting. Just spend a few minutes and see how easily you can generate Windows, web, and PDF reports. Play with the drag-and-drop data binding. Experiment with Telerik's acclaimed CSS-like customization of reporting items. The reporting tool is fast, compact, and very easy to deploy with a mere X-copy. Even if you don't get top marks in the quiz, you can still be a winner. The modest score of seven correct answers out of 11 questions secures you a complimentary Telerik reporting developer license that you can use in your personal and professional projects. So go to Telerik.com and give it a try. It's fun, it's interesting, and it can get you a free license or a new monitor. Um, before we get into the community stuff, let me just ask you a little bit about uh, the media, because you said multimedia. Does that mean that you can embed videos and uh, audio files and things like that into the into the reader? Because that's something I I don't know if I saw that in the New York Times reader or not, but uh, that that's a nice feature. Yep. Yeah. Now, uh, basically, since we are based on top of WPF, we can really support anything WPF can do, right? So, graphics, of course, is you know, a no-brainer, but we want to take that sure. and take it a little further. So we do things like 3D images or, or images that have an effect applied to them and so forth. And then that's one thing. But, of course, media integration in terms of audio and video is a huge topic for us. How about WPF controls? Like, can we actually have active content? WPF controls is absolutely supported, right? So you could do an interactive page of content, for instance, or an interactive article that really is programmed using um, Blend, for instance, right? It's just a WPF wow. UI. So you can do anything you can do in WPF, you can do uh, in scene. And that also wow. includes, by the way, the, all the 3D stuff. So if you want to start out uh, doing 3D product visualization, so let's say you do a, a magazine about the latest cars, you could have a car in 3D in your magazine rather than just a photo. Now we're talking. Well, I guess this is a natural <laughs> side effect of XAML, right? Is that WPF reads as XAML, and XAML can embed all of this functionality quite naturally. Exactly right. I'm looking at the screenshots of the basic reader, and, and unless you really know what you're looking at, you would not necessarily know this is all WPF. It, it looks pretty straightforward. You haven't you got a regular slider bar there, and, I mean, things look fairly normal. You haven't gone with that real wacky WPF, everything is wrapped over a sphere. Correct. Look. Well, Richard, you know what I'm thinking, right? You've got to keep in mind the, the content that we've made available so far is mostly Code Magazine content and related content that we own as a publisher of Code Magazine, right? which is really separate from being the producer of Scene. So what we are now doing is we are trying to work with various publishers around the world, actually. We're doing this, well, North America and Europe, really, at this point. Um, and we are trying to get other types of content into the system. So one of the things that I'm currently looking into, for instance, and I'm not sure whether this will happen or not, but we certainly hope to at least have it as an example, is to get a hiking guide or a ski guide into the system. And the, the thing I envision here is to not start a, uh, this book or guide or whatever you want to call it. We don't want to start it out with a table of contents, 
but we want to start it out with a 3D image of the mountain that you can interact with, right? And now that the mountain itself becomes your table of contents, and then you zoom into certain parts of the mountain, and now there's content about that available, right? So the mountain becomes your table of contents, and it becomes a living table of contents, right? Because the mountain uh, will use web services to pull in live weather data. People will say, oh, my God, there's a mountain of content in here. Oh, please save yes, me. That's exactly right. But, you know, the idea that, that a table of contents is really just a map of the information available, and you're saying, well, get rid of the table, just make it the map. Correct. That a table of contents, I think, is somewhat outdated today. Right? It's cool to have a book with a table of contents, but that's one way of reading. So other ideas we have revolve a lot more about the community putting content together and the way they see fit. So, for instance, if you have one article, the community could say, okay, this is a cool article, but in order to understand this, you should read this chapter of a book before, right? Or if you want to have more information about this, go on and read this article afterwards or this white paper afterwards, right? And now, based on that community information, we can create document maps that can really replace a table of contents, and it can replace table of contents uh, across publications, right? So it's kind of the TiVo model of reading, right? I don't know if you guys have a TiVo, but to yeah. me, the TiVo totally changed the television experience from watching the Discovery Channel to just watching shows I like. The, the same kind of thing we want to do with Scene, where we can say, okay, well, here's content that might interest you, but you may not care where it came from. You know, the big challenge of that is going to be integrating the metadata together that I might get information about hiking from three or four different sources and somehow I have to combine that. Correct. And that's where we've done a lot of work in the back end actually. Well, are you talking about being like an Uber publisher of content that where like everybody who has content in Zine is going to be part of this big uh, wealth of knowledge or are you know like hooking everybody together are you talking about that or are you talking about just letting people use it for their different projects so we don't want to own all the content that goes into scene we just see ourselves as, as someone who facilitates this model right so it's it's more like a virtual newsstand kind of think of it as you know a an Amazon.com of digital content, digital reading content, you know, or a smaller Amazon.com, right? So, no, we don't want to own all the content, nor do we want to be the ones producing all the content. We just want to facilitate that other publishers can publish into the system and be part of it, right? And also the community to publish into the system and be part of it. Now, I'm hanging on to this idea that the source of the publication is not going to be important, so I'm trying to envision a, the ability to read an article that happened to come from Code Magazine about programming against the tablet PC and then be able to naturally reference other tablet PC-related articles from other mediums. Yes, absolutely. So to me, that is really one of the exciting things about this platform, right? And from a Code Magazine point of view, you could argue, is this the greatest thing to me? Uh, or, or is this really a bad thing, right? And and I think ultimately it comes down to producing content that people want, right. right? I don't want people to stick with Code Magazine because that's the subscription they bought and, and, and now they're stuck with it. And I don't think that happens anyway, right? Because a Code Magazine subscription is however long you get it, you know, to probably around 30 bucks a year or something. So it's not a huge level of commitment financially. You know, it's not like people won't go off to another magazine if we have bad content. Yeah, it's not like they don't have other subscriptions. Right. So, and, and I, of course, as a publisher, my natural instinct would be organize this by publisher. You want to read code? Mm -hmm. Go read code. You want to read another magazine? You go read another magazine. So to go underneath that and reorganize the data into a view that, that the reader ultimately cares more about, that's somewhat challenging. Well, I can't help but think that this is sort of like Microsoft Reader Redux, you know? Well, the, the Microsoft Reader is an interesting effort, and we have actually looked into using the Reader. But the problem with the Reader is it's extremely limited, right? You you buy into the model of digital rights management, and you have little impact as, as the publisher to say, no, I don't care about digital rights management. Distribute this freely. Or I do care about digital rights management. 
but I want to sell in a slightly different model than the reader provides. Right? So there's that problem. Then there's the problem of the actual format, which, which is last generation at least right, compared to WPF. Uh, and then just getting into this whole reader thing, the level, the bar that you have to clear to enter this is very high, and there certainly isn't a lot of community that publishes their little article or their long blog entry uh, into reader, right? It just doesn't happen because it's, you know, it's, it's, it's quite a commitment from a number of different points of view, right? Well, so, and you hit on the key point here, which is that the focus of those earlier reading technologies was rights management, not distributing and, and presenting content well. Correct. And digital rights management is, is a hairy thing, right? Because it's, it's very, very important. There's no doubt about it. But as soon as it gets into the way of reading, I think there's something wrong with it. All right? So we do take digital rights management very seriously, and we have it built in. But if you just own content, there's, you, know, you just install scene and you read your stuff, and it'll never interfere with what you're doing unless you're trying to go out and you're trying to uh, really copy something that the publisher decided you have no business copying. Well, Marcus, is there a way for you to count um, the readership? I mean, you know, it's something that's easier to do with print magazines, but how do you get an accurate count of people who are using Zine? Well, we know people that are logging in, right? So the first time you create Zine, you create an account, and we know that, right? So we know at the very least how many people we have that are, that are using Zine. We don't necessarily know how often they use it because they can use it online or offline, and we're not doing a lot of tracking right now in terms of, um, you know, looking at actual behavior. We, we don't track any of that at this point. But we do know when somebody downloads a new magazine, for instance, which is very important to the publishing industry because right now when I send out a printed magazine, I don't know if that gets anywhere, right? right. And, and even if I offer a PDF file and somebody goes to the site and does an HTTP get basically in their browser... I don't necessarily know whether that actually really got saved on their system and whether they ever opened it. So I'm not sure that I fulfilled my delivery obligation. But at least a download is more like a deliberate uh, pull, you know, count from the user rather than a push. Because you could push a magazine to somebody and it could sit on their coffee table. But if somebody actually goes and downloads something, you can measure their intent at least, which is really good. Well, and it also allows us to produce better content, right? Because if I know that we had this issue that was themed around, say, I don't know, well, WPF, for instance, right? And I saw that a lot of people got that and really opened it and read it. Well, that gives me a pretty good clue that maybe I should produce more of that kind of content in the future. Yeah. Uh, so there's that as well. Well, it sounds awesome. What is, what, what's the setup for somebody who wants to do their own publishing, do their own zine kind of thing? Uh, right now, it's a medium entry hurdle, I would say, because we really haven't given away any of the tools to the community or anything like that. So right now, it's typically a matter of somebody approaches us and says, I want to be in scene, and then we just add them to our backend system, and we have to look at the content format that they start out with. Right. So if they have some unusual format, say Quark Express as their way of, of storing all their content, uh, then we'd have to create some kind of converter because we don't have a tool for that right now. But if you have standard format, you know, Word, that sort of stuff, or XML even, then it's pretty easy to get you into the system. But we have to be involved at this point. Right. right? As it's still pretty early implementer phase. And that will open up more, right? So we'll, we'll give a lot of the tools that we have internally. We're going to polish them up, and we will make them available to professional users as well as to the community and then, that'll drastically lower the bar again. But I would say at this point, it's already drastically lower than it is to, say, get into Reader or any of the other digital formats. Well, Richard, you know what I'm thinking, don't you? What are you thinking, Mr. Franklin? Probably what the listeners are thinking, too, which is, you know, when can I see the DNR transcripts in Zine? Along maybe with, uh, you know, players and downloaders and things like that. I was really thinking DNR TV, too. And yeah. all of those are very feasible, right? So I would love to see those types of things. And I think it would be relatively straightforward to do as well. I mean, the, the yeah, idea of the transcripts is very compelling, but I ultimately want to listen to the show. You know, the big thing that I find that's useful with the transcripts is the ability to search them. 
define particular topics that then lead me to a list of shows that are going to I can listen to that are going to be related to that topic. By the way, our search site is no longer broken. Yeah, isn't that good? It works now. Not all the shows are up there yet, but most of them are, and the ones that are really are searchable. The way it should be. The way it should be. So, Marcus, um, what what haven't we talked about with Zine? Well, I think there's, uh, you know, the scene, the way we have and know it right now, which is a, a pretty straightforward reader that allows you to read Code Magazine and a few other types of content that, uh, content that we make available. And there's a lot more stuff coming in the near future. From, we're talking to several, we're actually already working on, on content conversion for several websites that uh, collect royalty-free classics literature, basically. Right? So there's going to be a lot around that. We're talking to Microsoft. So, uh, we're talking to several publishers in the .NET space that publish books. So there's a lot of stuff coming just on the content side there. And that, of course, will also include what we call at this point the marketplace, which is a way where you can acquire new content, whether that content is free or some publishers, uh, like say a book publisher, will obviously decide to sell content. There's going to be ways of actually renting content where you could say, hey, I would, I would just like to have five .NET books a week, and I'm going to pay so much a year to do that, and then every week I can change and get a different book and so forth. So those are the kinds of models that you couldn't do today in digital uh, content. And we will be able to do that with Scene, or we already are able to do that with Scene. So, so I can sort of see the Napster model, uh, which is, you know, pay one monthly fee, and then access whatever content you want, and then on the back end, you know, we figure out who gets what based on what was listened to. Or, um, but what about other newspapers? I mean, it seems like. The New York Times sort of raised the bar with, you know, the the New York Times reader. Other newspapers aren't about to go out and, you know, reinvent the wheel. Why not uh, go to the Washington Post or something like this and say, hey, you can have a New York Times reader kind of thing? Newspapers are already doing that. There's a Seattle PI who is basically using the same thing that the New York Times reader uses. And, in fact, Microsoft is actually coming out with an SDK around that. Really? Right. So I, I think there is a model that, that follows that. But the question I always have is, you know, I installed the New York Times reader, and that was cool until they started charging for it, obviously. Uh, and then I installed the, the Seattle PI reader, and then I installed the Forbes reader, which is the same sort of thing. And now I already have three different readers. I have three different applications to maintain uh, my content, and I have three different places where I need to search if I want to, and if I remember that I had this digital content somewhere, but I can't recall where it's from. I think that concept is valid, but it has some issues that we think we have a better story for. Right? So we want to approach a lot of other magazines and newspapers, and we're already talking to several newspapers about this, about bringing them into scene right, rather than a standalone solution. Yeah. And really, as far as we are concerned, they can do both because both readers use WPF and SAML, right? So, you know, there's no reason we couldn't take in the content that the New York Times people have. Now, of course, they're locking it with the digital rights model, um, but it, but just the core format of the content they have, we could take in as is. I don't understand the whole DRM thing, especially when you have content that's ad revenue driven, like you know, magazines and newspapers are. I mean, yeah, you charge a little for the magazine, but that doesn't cover the cost of producing the magazine. That is it's... absolutely correct for magazines and newspapers. Uh, so for Code Magazine, for instance, we've been giving away a lot of content on, our, on, on the web for free ever since we did it, right? And I think that's a very valid model for newspapers and magazines. Now, of course, we're also trying to do other things. So, for instance, if you envision buying... Uh, a book from a .NET publisher. Yeah, uh, well, books those are guys different. don't do advertisement. They are just interested in selling their books. So at that point, digital rights management becomes much more important. I agree. And especially if you want to do a model like, you know, pay five bucks a month to be part of this book club, and you can have the book for a week. Well, at that point, it, it kind of becomes crucial to the business model to say, well, you really only have it for a week, right? Otherwise, you really have to buy it. Yeah. I agree. And, and then it gets even even worse than that when you talk about things like, say, 
uh, a book that a lawyer would buy. That you know, that lawyers have those books that they buy annually that that explains the latest law and so forth, right? And right. buy that for a thousand bucks or something. Or value line for stocks. Well, the publishers of that sort of content are really concerned about dig- digital rights management. So we want to provide a platform where digital rights management is present, but each publisher can totally decide whether they want to use it and what the rules are, right? So for Code Magazine, for instance, you know, we don't do much with it, and we just say, hey, you know, you want to pass this on to a friend? We want to make this as easy as possible for you. And I guess there's really two angles here on DRM. One is limiting how long a given customer has access to that data, and the other is limiting the ability to distribute it to someone else. Or use it in ways that you may not want them to use it, right? Like, do you want people to actually be able to print a book, which would uh, equal, you know, having it more than a week, for instance, right. if that's what your scenario is? I don't know. I this is the, you know, if we were, we should have had you on the show with Don Box and Chris Sells because, you know, we were coming up with all these reasons why you know books are on their way out, and and there's a reason why they're not. Because of DRM, you know? The, yes. The... Well, I'm in general of the opinion that old media is not replaced by new media, right? A lot of people say, oh, books are dead, magazines are dead. Well, you know, certainly there's a big digital component nowadays uh, that replaces, first of all, print, and then perhaps you could even argue it replaces the format of a book. Right, and it's now blogs and all that sort of stuff. But I think print isn't dead. I think there's a huge reason for print to stay around. And and I think having something that's well edited like a magazine or a book also has its place. I mean, there's great value in blogs and, and all that sort of stuff, and obviously I'm blogging myself. Um, but there's also great value in having something that's well edited and fact-checked and, and just follows the, the general rules of publishing. Right. I mean, really, when you look out at the web right now, it's great to have all this content available. But if you go out today and you look up content around WPF development, one of the first things you see is that 80% of it, or probably more than half of it anyway, is really for some beta version, right? And you have no good way of filtering that out. And there's no editor that looks at that and says, hey, this has now become outdated. Be aware that this was for the beta. Right? So the self-organizing thing is great for a lot of things, but it's not the only model that's valuable, right? I think both models have a place. And then whether you print it on a sheet of paper or not is, is a different question. I do think that there's a big place for printed content as well, which is why we will keep doing it for the magazine. And I think that sort of thing, you know, old media not being replaced by new media is something that we've seen throughout history, right? I mean, radio, for instance, did not get replaced by TV. There's probably more radio stations today than there were 50 years ago. And obviously with podcasting, you know, that's really just another form of radio. So right. I, don't, I don't see old media going away. I just see that new media is added, and that makes a lot of sense. And it changes old media, but it doesn't make it go away totally. Yeah, it's funny. I still have a newspaper sitting on my kitchen table. Yeah. I just... You're so old school, Richard <laughs> Campbell. Yeah, and you... You know, you can take it to the bathroom and, you know, unless you have a Dude, tablet PC, that's difficult. To I have a, yeah, I was going to say, I, I have a tablet PC. That's that that's what I take to the bathroom. <laughs> uh, and I have a Sony reader, but man, I don't take that in the bathroom either. Yeah. Well, and, you know, there's other scenarios too. I mean, you sit in the plane, you know, you sit outside in your yard and read and it's too bright and we're still not quite there in terms of providing uh, right. readers that are really bright, right? And then, then there's the problem of, the resolution because you read digitally and your eye tires very much because the resolution isn't there is just the main problem that we have there right so and that's that's of course a problem that we are tackling with WPF so scene for instance uh, is all vector graphics based right so we can support high resolution display so if you have a 300 dpi monitor you can actually read at the same level of quality that you could read a sheet of paper and that's huge, right? But not everybody has this yet, and, and therefore a lot of people that sit in their yard and read a magazine, they read a magazine and not on the computer typically. And I think that's okay, right? We're just not there yet, and, and I think there'll, there'll always be people uh, that read 
just on, on, on a piece of paper. And keep in mind, this is not just about publishing a developer magazine. This is about reading in general. Right. Right. So there's still a whole generation of people out there that are not going to read, you know, good housekeeping magazine on a computer necessarily. And I guess the big thing that WPF has done is taken away the coding element yeah. of dealing with new hardware. Now when new hardware comes along that's higher resolution or has some other capability, WPF is just going to be able to render to it. It's not a big deal. Exactly right. And it's going to render in, at a very high level of quality in terms of the layout, right, where things are on the display. I mean, it doesn't get thrown off because you have a different resolution. Right. And it's lossless. I mean, here's, here's one cool thing for people to try that have seen. If you have seen and you run it on Windows Vista, Use the Windows Vista magnifier and zoom in at the maximum magnification that the magnifier allows. And you'll right. see that each and every letter is still totally crisp, right, because it's lossless. It's, it's pretty cool. Try it out. So besides Actors. WPF, you also use WCF in Zine? Yep, exactly. I mean, it's basically based on .NET 3.0, so the whole communication with the server backend is all WCF-based, 100%. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Developer Express. Developer Express, crafting first-class tools, frameworks, and controls for the .NET developer. Improve your experience online at www.devexpress.com. So I'm just thinking about if we're going to bring .NET Rocks to Zine, which I'm kind of smitten with, to be honest. It's just another mm -hmm. way of getting to the content. I like it, too. <laughs> Am I going to be able to use my RSS feeds to send content to uh, to the Zine client? Um, not in the current version, but it certainly is something that we are very, very seriously looking at and that will be in one of the next versions. Because suddenly this becomes a blog reader, too. Uh, that's correct. Blog, uh, as well as, you know, blogs with attachments like podcast feeds and, and things like that. Well, I was still not? trying I to mean... figure out some things there because, as I said before, we have this managed approach where you can log into Zine from different workstations. And the cool thing about that is if you have, say, a, a magazine article, you can annotate that article, right? So you can handwrite over it or you can type something in, a, a little remark, attach it to you know, a word or a paragraph that you highlight. And, and then the cool thing is if you then walk up to a different workstation, you can actually opt to sync that back to the server so if you if you do that, then you would see your comments and annotations on a different workstation as well. But how would I share those comments with somebody else? Uh, you currently cannot. It's actually one of the things that we're looking into uh, as well. And we would like this concept of being able to have some private annotations and some public annotations. Right. As long as right. we're both subscribers to the magazine so we can both see the article, I can make annotations that you can see. Correct. Now, that the tricky part is that there is also, you know, 35,000 other subscribers. So that, that could be a lot of different annotation feeds coming together. Well, Marcus, why not um, embed like a little web browser in, uh, in there so that if you had content that was, say, on a forum or on a blog, you could just jump to it with a little hyperlink? Yes. Actually, that, that is currently supported because in WPF, you can just use a frame element, right? Or in SAML, you can just use a frame element, and that makes a web browser. And we support that in, in Scene. We're not using it currently in the content that we have. It's just, you know, coincidentally not used. But it is supported on the platform. Right. It might be a nice way to link together sort of, uh, you know, comments. Exactly. Interesting. Comments, threaded discussions. Related right. content that's not WPF-based content, right? Because we don't want to lock lock out, uh, you know, this concept of saying, well, you know, here's a, a cool book chapter, but you should already read such and such as blog or such and such as website that may not be right. RSS syndicated. You know, we we certainly don't want to lock that out either, right? It's this concept of it being open is very important. You know, you know, we could really right. use a UI facelift like Zine that would make it much more interesting to work within Wikipedia. Yeah, because there's a whole yeah. the angle, unless you understand something about Wikipedia, it could drill into the discussions around particular articles and, and take a look at, you know, the debates that go on and the maturation of an article. You miss out on a huge part of Wikipedia, but the UI for that right now is atrocious. 
Yeah. To have Zine grab a hold of that and make that much more real, much more natural, that would be incredible. Right, and the reading format just isn't that comfortable and all those sorts of things, right? And, you know, this this works because uh, Zine will stream the content sort of on demand, just like a web browser. Is that it? That is one model, right? You can take yeah. the content offline. So much of the actual scenes, if you take a, a Code Magazine issue, for instance, right, that currently downloads offline into your scene library. And the current released client that we have out there, that's what it does for that sort of content. But say a video or audio uh, would typically stay on the server unless you explicitly bring it down. Right? And then website content, that's always online only. So we don't sync down HTML at this point. And I don't think we ever will, but we'll see what the community thinks. Um, now, a version that we already have internally here that we'll release later this summer allows you to do more management around that and say, you know, this thing here, you know, this huge book that I just bought, uh, I really don't need that offline, and I don't need that to take up room on my hard drive, so leave that online, but this issue of a magazine here, I would like to read offline and, and therefore bring it down so I can read it on the plane. Yeah. So both models really are supported. Well, that's good. Now what I need is a .NET 3.0 device that isn't a PC. <laughs> right. Well, funny you mentioned that, actually. Oh? Because there's two angles to that. One is having a device that is still a Windows device, right? Uh, in particular, say, the ultra-mobile PCs. Right. Pocket so we've PC actually phone. done quite a bit of work specific to UMPCs that make it easier to read scene content on UMPCs. So, for instance, a lot of UMPCs don't support rotation, uh, you know, portrait versus landscape. Right. So we support that in scene. So you can actually rotate a document by 90 degrees, for instance, and then read it real nicely on your UMPC. Yes, but can you rotate it 45 degrees? <laughs> well, we that's, what I, rotate that's what I really 45 want. 45 degrees. Um, it just it looks a little odd at that point. <laughs> so we, we yes, but I'm an artist. See, I'm... you just don't get it. <laughs> <laughs> I thought the UMPC was dead. Did it just not take off as a product? Well, I, I think the problem with UMPCs is is really the performance at this point. And the price tag. And the price tag. So, I mean, there's more coming, right? And hopefully the price tag will, will go down and the performance will go up. I mean, performance is one of the things that we really wrestle with, uh, with seeing at the UMPCs right now. And there's also more work we're doing around sensing the performance level of the machine and tuning down animations and, you know, that sort of stuff. Can you define U UMPC for me, Ultramobile PC? What is this? The Ultramobile PC is the, what Microsoft's codenamed Project Origami, which is basically a very small-scale PC. It's a little bit bigger than a PDA, in essence, but it's a full-blown CD. It has a hard drive, you know, typically an external keyboard, but it's, it's a very small tablet PC, really, that's built on standard parts, and thus is supposed to be cheaper, right? Now, we're still talking about 800 to to 1000 bucks right now, but the ultimate goal is to get to five, $600 for this mobile device that is a full-blown PC. Okay. And for reading, it's really a cool format. It would be a great form factor for small video, a little too big for podcasts right. and such, but great for as a reader. It really straddled the line between... The Slate-style tablets, which also are struggling to succeed, and mm -hmm, the PDA, right. where the screen is just too small. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, but I just I, I I agree with you, Marcus. It should be five hundred dollars, and it is a thousand dollars, and that's just right. the, you know is what's killing the as a problem. And it, it should be at a performance level that's reasonably comparable to the regular PC. Yeah, well, nobody's going to so. care if you can't use it, right? If it doesn't feel good, it's fun to use and snappy. Then everything else is moot. Right, but I think. You know, it'll eventually get there, which is not there yet. And I would have wished that the first generation would have been there. So we don't now struggle this uphill battle against the, you know, the perception that all UMPCs are slow or something, right? So I, I actually saw an article in the magazine that, that put it very well. And what they said is when Microsoft first announced Project Origami, the public really stood up and took notice about it, right? But as soon as the first devices started to show up, they sat back down yep. because... 
the releases weren't that exciting when when it like when it came down to it. But well, and everybody had that same reaction that, awesome. that the next version would be better. So I'll wait. The problem is there isn't a next version unless somebody buys the first version. Correct. And, and I think we're right on that bubble of have we sold enough of V one to even justify it's, a V two? It's the Apple Newton syndrome. Right. And I, I think they actually are there. I think they're doing okay in terms of sales. In fact, that just map was met with some people from the origami team last week and you know they're saying you know if we weren't microsoft our sales numbers would be awesome because hardly any other company has the sales numbers that we have and and i'm not at freedom to actually say what they are but they have pushed a considerable number of units but you know i don't know how many of them are actually in use what the scenarios are i'd actually like to publish a case study in code magazine around you know what are people doing with them but we haven't really heard very much so, Marcus, what's uh, what's next? What's a person to do to experience this? Well, simply go to scene.com, X-I-I-N-E dot com, and get the free reader. You know, it's a very, very small install, very painless uh, by means of click once, and add some of the free content into it. Or, you know, if you want to buy a subscription to Code Magazine, we certainly don't mind that either. And start playing around with it, and send us some feedback. And you know, we we take the feedback we get very seriously. We basically set priorities based on the feedback that we get from people. So I just love people to, to play around with it. Or if you have content ideas, you know, would like to put the own content in scene. We're currently looking for people that have cool early ideas. Uh, we'd okay. love to hear about that as well. Well, that's great. So uh, what's, what's next for zine? What do you want to do in the next version? Well, Community is huge, so community in, in involvement will uh, be a big aspect of one of the next versions. This whole quote-unquote marketplace thing that we are building, which is you know where you will get your new content, whether you buy it or get it for free, that's going to be huge, and that's coming very soon. Uh, and then there's you know, going beyond the plain WPF client, we're also very seriously looking at Silverlight and building a Silverlight version of the, of the system. Unfortunately, Silverlight right now, is not really good at some of the things we do. Like, well, first of all, the document services are not there in Silverlight, so there's a lot of manual work we have to do to provide advanced layout in Silverlight. Um, and ah. also the 3D stuff isn't supported in Silverlight. So there's some interesting things that, that we're working with there, you know, that we're working on, and we're also talking to Microsoft, and they are helping us out to make some of the stuff happen. But that is huge, you know, being able to just go to a website and not having to install any client. Of course, it, it ruins the offline scenario right there, right? So for that, right. we'll still use the WPF client. But having both options and also being able to go to the Mac and to uh, Windows mobile devices and that sort of stuff, that's, that's very interesting for us. Are you treading on Adobe Acrobat territory here? Uh, probably a little bit, right? It's, we have a, a quite a different approach. I mean, the, the reading approach is different. Adobe still has this page-oriented approach. Right? And I simply question that the concept of a page makes sense in a digital world. Right? So in, in Adobe, yeah, you have your page of content, you then zoom in, so now you have to scroll. And scrolling is nasty for reading because you have this effect known as doubling. In other words, you go to the bottom of a page, then you scroll, and now the bottom three lines become the first three lines, and then you have right. to figure out that you really have to start reading three lines down now. Right? And that sort of thing doesn't happen when you read a book and flip the page. Right. So... Uh, we have a different approach there, and, and we support scrolling, but most people don't use that. We use a single uh, type of page switching approach. Uh, so, so that's different. And then the other thing is that Adobe is just individual files, right? So just because you've got a book in PDF format does not mean that it's somehow part of your library and you can walk up to a different workstation and you have it there, right? Or your, your uh, laptop PC, right? It won't be there. Uh, nor can right. you easily search across multiple PDF files and so forth. So, in a way, okay. it's a little bit uh, stepping on PDF toes, but it's also a very different approach overall, I think. So, not too worried about that aspect. Well, very good. Uh, Marcus, it's been a pleasure to have you on the show again. Well, yeah, this is for very exciting me. stuff. Very exciting stuff. It's always a pleasure to be back. Thanks, Marcus. And uh, 
Yeah, thanks. All right. Bye. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter van.